Church planting is uh, all the rage these days. Everywhere you turn in the Reformed, Evangelical, Baptist circles in which I, I run, someone is planting a new church. I've got lots and lots of friends who are planting new churches. I'm meeting with a church planter, in fact, on Wednesday morning to talk about planting a church. From what I can tell, there seem to be three primary reasons when I talk with these friends of mine why they want to to plant these churches. Either, number one, there are no solid evangelical churches in a given geographic or ethnic region. Or number two, there aren't enough solid evangelical churches in a given region. Or number three, the evangelical churches in a given region are weak and ineffective and dying. And I have to say, as the pastor of an established church that is not a church plant, we've been around for a while, like 101 years, I I can't disagree with those three reasons. I affirm each and every one of them, unchurched regions and unchurched cultures and unchurched ethnic areas need churches. Underchurched regions and cultures and areas need more churches. And weak, ineffective, dying churches either need to revitalize and get back in the game, or they need to just die and get out of the way and give someone else a chance. But if I could give a word of caution to my church planting friends, it would be this. The goal of church planting is not the formation of something new, or the formation of something relevant, but the formation of something holy and timeless. See, a church that is built upon the new and the relevant is going to have a very short lifespan. By its very definition, it cannot last because the time will come sooner rather than later when there's a new new and the old new is no longer new but is in fact old. Then what do they do? Close up shop and plant another church that is new and relevant for the times? No, the goal in planting must be the establishing of a church which in its essential characteristics, not its external cultural trappings, I don't care if you have LED lights and and, detachable chairs or whether you have wooden pews and a pipe organ. I'm talking about in its essential characteristics, the goal is the planting of churches that look like the churches that Paul planted in Corinth and Philippi and Ephesus. The goal of church planting is to give birth not merely to a new church, but to a holy church, to a timeless church. And the goal, likewise, of church revitalization is is not to make an established church look new by putting in LED lights, but to bring it back to holiness. So whether we're talking about church planting or whether we're talking about church revitalization, like us, 
Whether we're in the first century in Rome or whether we're in the 21st century in Nixa, the goal is always the formation of a church that is strong and vibrant and healthy and timeless. The goal, in other words, is a holy church. And at First Baptist Nixa, we are in the relentless pursuit of that goal. But what is a holy church? No passage provides us with so clear and concise an answer to that question as does Hebrews 13. As the author of Hebrews is wrapping up this, this remarkable book, he gives to his congregation a string of exhortations which, if heeded, will enable them to persevere in faith and attain to that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Thus far, we've been in here two weeks. We have two to go, including this one. Thus far, we've seen four marks of a holy church. So if we are forming or reforming a church and, and striving for holiness, these marks ought to characterize our fellowship together, our assembly, our church, our body of Christ. Number one, we saw that a holy church is a loving church, verse one, and that it demonstrates this love in, in practical ways by showing hospitality, verse two, or by caring for prisoners or those who are being ill-treated, verse three. Number two, a holy church is a pure church, verse four, a church that honors the sanctity of the marriage covenant and the purity of the marriage bed. Number three, a, a holy church is a free church, verses 5 and 6. A church that is free from the love of money, free from slavery to stuff. Consequently, free from the fear of tomorrow when all of your money and stuff may be taken away. And finally, number four, a holy church is an historic church, verses 7 and 8. A church whose roots run deep into the soil of the historic Christian faith, drawing from that soil nourishment for the life and faith from those who have gone before. We move this morning into the fifth mark of a holy church, which is that a holy church is a doctrinal church. So we begin in verse 9, where the author says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. The Bible is absolutely relentless in, it, in its call to stand firm against false doctrine and against false teachers. You cannot honestly read the New Testament without coming to the conclusion that doctrine is vitally important to the health of a church and that false teachers who are bringing in false doctrine pose a grave and imminent threat to the existence of the church. Let me give you a few examples. You don't have to turn there. They'll be on the screen behind me. When Paul, for instance, departed from the Ephesian elders whom he had called to himself to gather on the beach of Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he left them with this instruction, beginning in verse 26, or 28 rather. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Well, why? Why, why do we have to be in this state of readiness and be on guard for the flock? 
Verse 29, because I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. And what's the effect? Drawing away the disciples after them. Paul says that when he left Timothy in Ephesus, he left him there for the express purpose, 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Timothy may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Listen, Paul wanted Timothy with him. Paul was very, very fond of his child in the faith. It would not be for some light or momentary reason that he would leave him in Ephesus. There must have been something very, very important that he wanted Timothy to do in Ephesus, and this was it. He says, Timothy, I left you there in Ephesus that you would instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he told Timothy to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. The treasure that has been entrusted to you. Jude, the brother of our Lord, wrote to the church, verse 3, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul even says that the mark of Christian maturity, how do you know when a Christian has attained to a level of maturity? He says in Ephesians 4.14 that they are no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of deceit, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's how you know. They're solid and firm and established in the faith. All of these passages and many more beside that we could have turned to make it clear that if First Baptist Nixa is going to be a holy church that doesn't have to be replanted or revitalized or shut its doors in 10, 15, 20, 100 years, then we must be a doctrinal church. That is, we must be a church that knows and loves and protects the word of truth, and the doctrines of the historic Christian faith. A church that does not know the word. A church that is ignorant of, or worse, apathetic to the doctrines of the faith. A church that is just unconcerned with all of that theology stuff, dry doctrine, is a church that will not stand the test of time. It will, it will, I promise you, it will degenerate into a soggy, formless puddle that eventually just absorbs into the world around it. Weak, ineffective, dying churches are usually so because they kicked doctrine to the curb long ago. So how do we at First Baptist Nixa remain holy and strong For years, decades, generations to come. How how do we ensure that we are not 
carried away by varied and strange teachings, as the author tells us not to be in verse 9. By the way, that word carried away, it's an interesting term, very vivid term. It literally means to flow away like a river. And the idea is that the church is like a boat in the middle of the river of this world that is being tugged downstream towards destruction by a strong underlying current. So how can this boat, this ark, remain fastened to its spot and tethered to the shore? That's the question we're after. At First Baptist Nixa, we're going to be passionate about biblical, doctrinal, and theological truth. That is who we are and that is who we will be. And we will continue to be so by making an unshakable commitment in at least three areas. This is how we're going to be holy in this matter. Number one, we will remain committed to a biblical confession of faith. Which in the case of our church is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We provide a copy of that confession of faith to every new member. And we require in our membership covenant that every member who comes into this church affirm every word of our seven statements of faith, as we call them, which cover the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of Scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, the church, and the last things. So that when we stand up here and we present new members into this church, you can have the assurance of knowing that we have received from them, we have, we have checked into their doctrine, and we have received from them a confirmation and affirmation that they agree with the faith that has been once for all delivered to this church. Number two, we will remain committed to the practice of expository preaching. There, there is no better way to ensure that we are consistently exposed Sunday by Sunday, Scripture by Scripture to the word of truth than to work passage by passage through books of the Bible. And that's what we've done, at least for the last 18 months. We worked through the passage by passage through the book of Galatians. Then guess what we did? We worked passage by passage through the book of Jonah. And then where did we go? We've been passage by passage through the book of Hebrews. In a couple of weeks, we're going to finish. And then we're not going to invent some strange new way of preaching. We're going to open up another book. It's going to be Malachi. And we'll work through that. And when we're done with that, we'll open up Revelation. We'll begin working through that. And we will do that until I die. Because that is the way to know the Word. That's the way that the Spirit comes and works in our hearts that we may love the Word and stand on the Word and be rooted in the Word and be anchored to the doctrines of the faith so that we don't get carried away by, by strange and varied doctrines that are either brought in or arise from our midst or come in through our television screen. We'll remain committed to expository preaching. And third, we will remain committed listen to me, to the theological instruction of every member. Theology is not for pastors only. It is not for deacons only. It is for Christians. 
This is the supplement to the regular exposition of the Word that takes place from this pulpit and the regular application of the Word that takes place in our Connect classes on Sunday morning. So my desire, and this is where we're headed, is for every covenant member of First Baptist Nixa to engage actively in our discipleship programs. I, I, I desire, I have this dream that every one of our, of our new members would take the Baptist Catechism class. It takes a year to go through, but oh, it is worth it. It is, it is like shoring up the foundation of your faith. And many of us come to this church and we've got gaps in that foundation. We've got things we've never thought of that the Bible, the Bible treats as being absolutely essential and we've never thought of them. So let's think of them. Let's work on them. Let's lay that foundation and say, what does the Bible teach? What is the faith once for all delivered? The next time that's offered, which will probably be the next time around next year, take it, take it, take it, take it. That's why on Wednesday nights, we're committed to this idea. It's a shocking idea in our culture today. You know what we do? We read. We, we read books, like with actual pages. And they say stuff. And we work through them because they're helping us understand the book better. So at the end of this service, Gordon's going to stand up here and he's going to go through our four options for this next session of discipleship, which is starting Wednesday night. And I just want to encourage you, come, let's read books together. Books that help us know Jesus and to know the faith. Books that, that help us know what it means to desire God and what awaits us in our heavenly inheritance. Let's read books so that we can know Christ and be firmly rooted in this faith that's been once for all delivered. But of all of the doctrines of the faith, there is one doctrine that is so foundational, so essential, that it must be zealously guarded above all else. Luther called it the article on which the church stands or falls. In other words, if a church gets this doctrine right, they're going to be okay. If they get this doctrine wrong, no matter what else that they have right, they'll fall. Reformed Protestant churches have insisted for 500 years that it is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith such that a church can never be a true church without it. What is it, you ask? It's the doctrine that we spent all of the book of Galatians unpacking. That's why we started there, matter of fact. It's the doctrine of justification. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. It is the answer to that fundamental and most important question of all of humanity, which is, how can a sinner like me, like us, be accepted in the sight of a just and holy God? And the answer of Scripture, the uniform answer of this God-breathed revelation is that a sinner is justified before God by free and sovereign grace apart from any merit that we bring to the table. And that sinners are justified by faith alone, apart from any works of righteousness which we have done. 
and that sinners are justified and accepted by, in God's sight by virtue of Christ's saving work alone. His blood which atones for every spot and every stain and every iniquity. And His righteousness which covers our shame and clothes us like the garment of our salvation. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. This is the gospel and it's the doctrine that the author primarily has in mind in verses 9 to 12. Because he says in verse 9, don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. What's he talking about, foods? Well, under the old covenant, there were instances in which the, the sacrificial victims, right, the lambs, the, the, the offerings that were put upon the altar and sacrificed, there were times when they were eaten in ritual religious meals. Every year, for instance, Jewish families would partake of the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed. The regular burnt offerings and the grain offerings were eaten daily by the Levitical priests. It was their portion within Israel. And the author is making the point that eating the flesh of the Passover lamb or partaking of the consecrated bread, eating of the sacrifices and the grain offerings offered upon the altar did not spiritually benefit those who ate of them. Their hearts were not strengthened by these religious acts, these ritual duties. Why? And he establishes the truth here. Because hearts are strengthened by grace and not by foods. Hearts are strengthened by grace and not by religious ritual. Hearts are strengthened by grace and not by works of righteousness. Hearts, hearts are strengthened by grace and not by the performance of works or rituals or by human efforts of any kind. That's what grace is. Romans 11.6 says that if it is by grace, if hearts are strengthened by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You can't have grace and works. So if hearts are strengthened by grace, they're not strengthened by food. They're not strengthened by church attendance. They're not strengthened by tithing. They're strengthened by grace. Now, the author has already made this point in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, when he said that accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, which were regulations imposed until the proper time, the time of reformation would come. Okay, so mark this in your mind. The conscience is cleansed, the heart is strengthened, sinners are justified, not by works of the law, not by the performance of religious activities and rituals, but by grace alone. Grace alone. Justified by grace alone. Verse 9. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now I've said before that the New Covenant Church 
does not have an altar. Which is why the New Covenant Church should not have altar calls. There's no altar. This, these are steps. They are how you get up from down there to up here. This is not an altar. That table on which we put the Lord's Supper, that's a table. It, it keeps us from putting the bread in the cup on the ground so that it sits up so we don't have to bend over and, and, and get it. It's not an altar. But the New Covenant Church does have one altar. But our altar is not a physical location where people may go to get their sins forgiven and to get themselves justified. Our altar is the cross where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed once for all for the sins of His people. The author is speaking here figuratively of the atoning death of Christ, which is the grounds for the grace that strengthens our hearts. The, the cross of Christ is the altar to which you must go to receive the forgiveness of sins and justification. So, if, if you are here this morning, and you are, are burdened by the guilt of your sin, and you are separated from God, and you have no right relationship with Jesus Christ, and your life is, is a wreck and a mess, and it's darkness, and it is death, and you want freedom and life and forgiveness and justification, and you want to be reconciled to your Father who is in heaven, I am not going to tell you to come. I am going to tell you to go. You go to the the altar. You go to the cross where Christ died for sinners such as you. You go to Jesus and you plead forgiveness on the basis of his blood and his sacrifice and his life-giving merit alone. You go to the cross which is our new covenant altar and it is at that altar and at that altar alone where God justifies sinners. So go to Christ. Listen, this is radical. You don't even have to wait for the end of the service. You can go to him now. And you should. You go to him and you lay your sins at the foot of this altar, which is the cross, and you ask him to forgive you and make you new. You plead forgiveness on the basis of his atoning death and you shall have it. All of it. And from this altar, he says, those who serve the tabernacle, he's talking about the old covenant priests, they have no right to eat. Can't eat there. See, under the old covenant, the Levitical priests would eat the portion of the sacrifice that was not consumed upon the altar. But under the new covenant, it's only those who believe, those who who have staked all of their hope of salvation and forgiveness and justification on the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Only those who rest by faith in the sacrifice offered on the one and only new covenant altar, who say, that's my hope, that's, that's my sacrifice, that's the only plea that I have for forgiveness and justification. Only those can reap the benefits of this altar. He then describes the effect of Christ's death, verses 11 and 12. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, and then look at this, oh this is good, that he might sanctify his people through his own blood. That he would make his people holy. Suffered outside the camp. Here the author ties the death of Christ to the Old Covenant Day of Atonement. That's what he's talking about now. And every first century Jew would have known that immediately. See, on the Day of Atonement, a young bull and a young goat were slain upon the altar. And the blood was carried by the high priest into the holy place, into the very presence of God. And was there sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the sins of of the people, and then afterwards, the bodies of those sacrificed victims, the bull, the bull and the goat, would be taken outside the camp and would be burned. And the author sees this whole ritual. Do you remember from chapter nine? Do you remember when when the blood was already taken into the heavenly tabernacle? He's already covered that, right? The blood was taken by the high priest who is Jesus into the heavenly tabernacle and and was sprinkled upon the altar and that sprinkled blood is what renders us clean. Now he's dealing with the other part of that ritual and he's saying, and the body was taken outside of the camp and was disposed of there. He says that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who also suffered outside of the camp, outside of the gates of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha and by his own blood shed upon that altar of the wooden cross outside of the camp, he rendered holy every one of his people who would believe. Hearts are strengthened by grace alone, and not by the performance of religious rituals or works. Grace alone, verse 9. Sinners are justified by faith alone in the once for all sacrifice of Christ, who shed his blood upon the new covenant altar, which is the cross, and by that blood are rendered holy in the sight of God. Faith alone, Christ alone, verses 10 to 12. Do you see it? First Baptist Nixa, do not be carried away by strange and varied teachings. Especially those teachings, those doctrines which detract us from the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone foundation of your salvation. Do not be swept away by strange and varied doctrines, especially those strange doctrines which would would muddy the waters and detract from the clear articulation of this gospel. So if we would be a holy church, we need to be radical in our commitment to the purity of the gospel. And we need to zealously guard it from any contamination of human merit or human works or human righteousness. We need to be a church that stands firm upon the alones of the gospel. That is known for the alones of the gospel. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's what holy churches do. Number six. A holy church is a confessing church. All right, so the author moves seamlessly from verses 12 and talking about the doctrine of justification. We're rendered holy not by works, but by the blood of Christ shed upon the altar by grace. And he moves seamlessly into verses 13 and 14 
and the description of Jesus' atoning death for sinners outside the gate as the fulfillment of the day of atonement. And he issues this final exhortation. Therefore, or so, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. What the author does here is spectacular, particularly if you remember the Jewish context in which he writes. During the days of Israel's wilderness journey, the, the camp of Israel was set up as a square, right? The tabernacle was in the middle, and you would have three tribes to the south, and three tribes to the east, and three tribes to the north, and three tribes to the west, and they surrounded the, the tabernacle where God dwelt by His Spirit. Inside the camp was considered holy ground, particularly that, that tabernacle, right? The altar, the holy place, and then especially the holy of holies where the Ark of Covenant rested and where the, the mercy seat was found and the Shekinah glory hovered. Holy ground was inside the camp. In fact, Outside of the camp was the, the, the realm of the unclean and the defiling. And if anybody had to go outside of the camp, they became ritually defiled and they could not come back inside the camp, back inside onto the holy ground, unless they went through a period of ritual purification. And it remained that way even into the days of Jerusalem and, and the temple. Jerusalem was the holy city. It's where the holy people of God dwelt inside the walls, inside the gate. But there is a scene in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses comes down from the mountain after receiving the law and he sees what is going on and he is absolutely disgusted with the people over their sin. And he takes the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And he tears it down, and he goes and he pitches it outside of the camp. And he says, anybody who wants to go inquire of the Lord, they've got to go outside of the camp because God's no longer here. He's out there. See where the author of Hebrews is going? So here comes the Messiah. And he came to his own. And his own received him not. And so God pitched his tabernacle outside the camp. And he's declaring to all people everywhere, and he's declaring to these first century Jews, and he's declaring to First Baptist Nixa, if you would have fellowship with me, you must come out to me. Exodus 33 shows that when Israel fell so deeply into rebellion and sin and apostasy that God withdrew from his people, and he established his dwelling place outside of the camp so that any who would have fellowship with him would have to go outside of the camp. And the author of Hebrews sees that episode as prefiguring what transpired in the days of Christ. Because of their persistent rebellion and their rejection of their Messiah and King, God has set up his new covenant altar, which is the cross, outside of the gate. And there, outside of the gate, on a windswept hill called Golgotha, overlooking the holy city, there he offered the blood of his holy son to render his people holy. That is, all those who would come out of the city and into his city. Now God dwells outside of the camp. He's outside of the gate. 
He's outside of Jerusalem. He is outside of the Old Covenant city. He is outside of the Old Covenant tabernacle. He is outside of the Old Covenant priesthood and the Old Covenant law and the Old Covenant sacrifices. And he is outside of the Old Covenant itself. And now, fellowship with God, that is justification and reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins, can only be found outside of the camp where Jesus suffered in order that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So the author is calling to this Jewish Christian congregation. He's saying, leave behind Judaism and everything that belongs to it. Leave behind the law and leave behind the temple and leave behind the priesthood and leave behind the sacrifices. Leave behind the feasts and come outside the camp into the new covenant, into the new covenant church through faith in the new covenant gospel. And make no mistake, he knew exactly what he was asking them to do, and he knew that it was a dangerous calling. He is asking these Jewish Christians to abandon their culture and their ethnic people, their ethnic religion, their sacrifices, their temple, their tradition, and to worship and trust exclusively in a Messiah that all of their countrymen considered to be a fraud. He knows what he's doing. He knows that walking out of the city and coming outside of the camp to Jesus is not going to be a popular action. He knows that they'll be ridiculed, scorned, outcast, persecuted, even killed. Listen, that's why he's been preparing them to suffer since chapter 11. All of that talk about suffering is leading up to this exhortation in verse 13. He knew where he was headed. All of that talk about Moses, right, who chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ, does that sound familiar? The reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. That's because he knew where he was going. All of that talk at the end of Hebrews 11 when he reminded them of all of the faithful of times past who were tortured, mocked, scourged, chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, homeless, men of whom the world was not worthy but who gained the approval of God through their faith. He did all of that reminding because he was headed here to verse 13 and he says, listen, this is what the people of God do. God is calling to you from outside of the camp. He's calling you to trade comfort, familial relationships, thriving businesses. He's calling you to come out and get justified by faith. Why? Why why would anybody do that? Why would anybody leave the city where there's comfort and possessions and wealth and relationships and and leave and go outside of the camp? But he gives them the reason, verse 14, because the earthly Jerusalem is not going to last. The city of man, doesn't matter where it is, Jerusalem, Israel, America, Nixa, the city of man is going to be destroyed by fire. And only the heavenly Jerusalem, the true city of God, Zion, will remain. So God's call to you, First Baptist Nixa, is to go out to Christ, who is outside of the camp. And in so doing, to bear his reproach. 
See, a holy church is a confessing church. Jesus Christ and his sanctifying blood are not found within the camp, inside the gate, inside the bounds of cultural sensitivities and acceptable religious practice. A holy church will never be a popular church. But a holy church will be a powerful church. So I invite you to hear the voice of God this morning, speaking through his word. He is standing outside of the camp and he is bidding to all of his people everywhere, saying, therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Second Corinthians six seventeen, And he is calling us to come out from among them to be separate and to confess Christ and his gospel openly and boldly before a watching world. So what does a confessing church do? A holy church is a confessing church. A holy church, therefore, is a church that baptizes publicly. Baptism is your initial confession of faith before a watching world. So if you've never confessed Christ through baptism, now is the time to consider that. You come and find me after the service and I want to talk with you about that. But confession then continues And it continues in the way that we live our lives and in the way that we talk. It continues as we live lives as people of light in the midst of a dark world. People look at our lives and they see see light. They see holiness. They see righteousness. And it continues as we are people, as it said in 1 Peter 2, 9, who are declaring the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into light. So confession happens, number one, in baptism, and number two, continually through our lives and through our lips. A holy church is a doctrinal church. It's built upon the solid foundation of the word of truth and the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And a holy church is a confessing church that follows Christ outside of the camp, sharing in his reproach that one day, one day, we may share in his glory. My Father, I pray for First Baptist Nixon. I pray for us. May we be a holy church that loves the word of truth, that loves doctrine, that takes its stand upon the scripture. And may we be a church that stands firm upon the alones of the gospel, trumpeting out everywhere from our pulpit and from our pews. That hearts are strengthened by grace and not by works. They're strengthened by a Savior who died upon a new covenant altar. They're strengthened by faith in the once for all atoning sacrifice which has sanctified the people of God. And may we be a confessing church that comes out of the darkness and steps into the light that comes out of anonymity and steps into the realm of bold confession of Christ and of His gospel. Strengthen our hearts this morning. I pray that you would call sinners out of darkness and into light, that they would go to you. That they would lay their sins down at the cross and confess That they have no merit, no righteousness. They have no works that could make them acceptable. But they need your free 
grace, through faith, because of the blood and righteousness of Christ. Call them out and save them. And if that is you, you go to Him in prayer. And if you want me to pray with you, then by all means, during this time of response and worship, come and I will pray with you and we will seek Christ. I will take you to that altar. I will take you to the cross. I will take you to Jesus. You come and find me. And for the rest, as we worship and as we respond and as we pray, strengthen hearts so that we will be a firmly doctrinal and a boldly confessing that is a holy people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.